For those of you that may be new to Antioch and this is your first Sunday, welcome. Um, we, take very, we take Jesus incredibly seriously, but we don't take ourselves all that seriously, if that makes sense. And uh, I love it when the Lord Jesus kind of reaches out and just kind of tousles my hair. By the way, I'm getting some serious feedback here. I don't have to have this mic, by the way. Okay. Last year and this year, oh, am I going to need this? Is it not working? You got it? Use this instead? Okay, great. The Lord just messed up my head. Fine with me. I love it. Today I want to share out of the last two chapters of John. Early in the morning on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone was moved away from the entrance. She ran at once to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, gasping for breath. They took the master from the tomb. We don't know where they put him. Peter and the other disciple left immediately for the tomb. They ran neck and neck. The other disciple got to the tomb first, outrunning Peter. That's an important note. Stooping to look in, he saw the pieces of linen cloth lying there, but he didn't go in. Simon Peter arrived after him, entered the tomb, observed the linen cloths lying there, and the kerchief used to cover his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but separate, neatly folded by itself. Then the other disciple, the one who had gotten there first, John really wants us to understand he won the foot race, didn't he? Went into the tomb, took one look at the evidence, and believed. No one yet knew from the scripture that he had to rise from the dead. The disciples then went back home. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. As she wept, she knelt to look into the tomb and saw two angels sitting there, dressed in white, one on the head, the other at the foot where Jesus' body had been laid. They said to her, woman, why do you weep? They took my master, she said, and I don't know where they put him. After this, she turned away and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not recognize him. Jesus spoke to her, woman, why do you weep? Who are you looking for? She, thinking that he was the gardener, said, sir, if you took him, tell me where you put him so I can care for him. Jesus said, Mary. Turning to face him, she said in Hebrew, Rabboni, meaning teacher. Jesus said, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go to my brothers and tell them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. 
Mary Magdalene went, telling the news to the disciples. I saw the master. And she told them everything he said to her. I want you to skip a few verses. And Jesus has appeared. He's walked through the wall. He's appearing to the twelve, to the eleven, but one of them's not there, Thomas. And go to verse 25, 24 and 25. But Thomas, sometimes called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciple told him, we saw the master. But he said, unless I see the nail holes in his hands, put my fingers in the nail holes and stick my hand in his side, I won't believe. Eight days later, his disciples were again in the room. This time, Thomas was with them. Jesus came through the locked doors, stood among them, and said, Peace to you. Then he focused his attention on Thomas. Take your finger and examine my hands. Take your hand and stick it in my side. Don't be unbelieving. Believe. Thomas said, My master and my God. Jesus said, so you believe because you've seen with your own eyes. Even better blessings are in store for those who believe without seeing. Then skip down to chapter 21. We're just going to read it all and then we're going to talk about four characters that we see here. After this, verse 1, Jesus appeared again to the disciples, this time at the Sea of Tiberias. And I'm not going to read the whole story, but here's the deal. Peter says, I'm going fishing. And because Peter is a leader, everybody says, well, we'll go with you. And they go and fish all night. And they don't catch anything. Down in verse uh, 4. Three and four. The rest of them replied, we're going with you. They went out, got on the boat. They caught nothing. And when the sun came up, Jesus was standing on the beach. But they did not recognize him. Then they begin to get inkling, And Peter gets so excited, he jumps in the water and swims a hundred yards. And by the time he gets there, Jesus has a, he's cooking breakfast. And he says, bring in some of those fish. Now, for most of us, I'm like, I don't know about fish for breakfast, but grilled fish for breakfast might be okay. But Jesus is fixing them a meal. And then he says this, after he pulls Peter aside. And he says, after breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Master, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Then he asked him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he, he said, yes, Master, you know I love you. Jesus said, shepherd my sheep. And then he said to a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was upset that he'd asked for the third time, do you love me? So he answered, Master... You know everything there is to know. You've got to know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. <clears throat> May the Lord bless the word of his, his word. Lord, bless the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth. We thank you for your living word.
The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a mere historical fact like any other historical fact. It has infinitely more impact on your life depending on how you respond to it. Whether I do or don't believe that Caesar crossed the Rubicon or whether I do or don't believe that Alexander the Great conquered most of the known Western world or whether I do or don't believe that Neil Armstrong walked on the moon 52 years ago. That really doesn't make much impact on my life. But whether you and how you respond to the historical fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead is the most important decision of anybody in this room. How you handle that, how you respond to it, it is beyond question the most important decision you make of all the decisions in your life. It's more important than who you marry. It's more important than who you go to college with. It's more important than the career you choose to have or the careers you choose to involve yourselves in. It is the single most important decision, what you decide to do about that historical fact. And we have, we have four different people I want to look at and how they had problems recognizing the resurrected Savior. Not unlike the people in this room might have problems recognizing the resurrected Savior. And the first one was Mary. Now Mary, it tells us in Luke chapter 8 verse 2 that she had, Mary Magdalene was the woman who Jesus cast seven demons out of her. Whatever you think of that, you can probably conclude she might have looked like she had some mental illness, she had problems, she had issues, she was not anybody's vote for the homecoming queen. Her life was not together. And Jesus had set her life free. And now she had a new narrative, and that was totally crushed by Jesus' death. And everything about her life was now focused on a new narrative. And it was a narrative that, that was nothing but despair. It, it doesn't sound necessarily all that different than what the world has been going through for the last 12 to 14 months. Hopelessness, despair, tension, political strife, racial strife, economic uncertainty collapse of all kinds of confidences and in institutions even our, our own country seems to be unraveling at the edges what is our hope in and here's the interesting thing even Mary Magdalene had her hope in an undersized God she had no comprehension of who he really was he kept telling her along with the rest of the disciples who he was, what he was going to do, and they still were incapable, much like us, of comprehending it, anticipating it, and believing it. Her emotions were driving her, not her logic, 
That's not a bad thing. Many of us who argue about our logic and our intellect as the reason we may not believe actually are doing it for emotional reasons. Well, you know, I got slapped by a Catholic priest when I was a, a kid. Maybe I read a story about a horrific abuse by a preacher. Maybe I have just been disillusioned by God not meeting promises. I've met many people that are totally disillusioned with the God they thought they were following. Narratives are filters that cause us to exclude reality. What's the story you're telling yourself? That story determines everything in the way you see reality. Usually it's a story that distorts reality. That's why we have to have clarification through the one true story. And so Jesus doesn't start like a sergeant barking out, Look at me, Mary. You know what he says? He says, Who are you looking for? Why are you weeping? You see, Jesus always comes to us solicitously. He's not, he is the king, and we love singing about the fact that he's the king. But he became the king in no other way, in a way that no other king has ever become a king. His kingdom is the antithetical approach to the way the kings of the world do things. In fact, as he was being questioned by Pilate before his crucifixion, he said, don't you get this? Don't you understand? I have power. He said, you wouldn't have any unless it was granted to you. Later on, he, he, he reveals that there's 72,000 angels at his beck and call with their swords drawn, ready to intervene on what they certainly did not understand. How could you ex execute the God-man? Don't you know who he is? They certainly did. And yet, he didn't. He said, Father, your will, not mine. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet, in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophet. Acts 13 tells us that. Can I just submit to you that the, the rulers of Jerusalem... And the disciples are no more spiritually numbskulls than you and me. <laughs> they are no more spiritually insensitive than most of us. This Paul later in Romans tells us that none seek God. Now, I don't mean to imply that nobody seeks some transcendent divine spiritual experience. We often are seeking spirituality, but we always want to do it in our own terms, with our own self-assessments that, that do not challenge our presuppositions about our own self. We're looking for a God that we can control. We're looking for a God that makes us happy we're looking for a God that is smaller than us.
Some people say, well, Steve, you don't understand. I, I'm, I'm a really smart person. I'm a thinker. I'm like Thomas. I don't allow emotions to get into my way. I use logic. I am a materialist. I, you know, in other words, just the facts, ma'am, nothing but the facts. I don't get, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the kind that goes out and stands and weeps beside a tomb. I want to see reality. Now, here's an interesting thing. There was a, there's, there's a guy by the name of Richard Dawkins. He's a famous atheist. It's interesting, his main atheism is toward Christianity. It's amazing how you can't believe in a God. You say you don't believe in a God, but why do you, if you don't, why do you even give it a second thought? I think it's mostly because we're arguing what our heart is telling us that our head won't agree with. But here's something for your head to agree with. Dawkins had a contemporary back about 200 years after Jesus. His name was Celsus, and he was a Greek philosopher who hated the idea of Christianity. And his biggest justification for the reason he derided the resurrection story, and this is it. Listen to this. His main attack was on Mary Magdalene's testimony. And I'm quoting him, okay? I didn't say this. He said this. How could anyone except rational men listen to the hysterical testimony of a female? Uh, misogyny, by the way, was kind of standard fare 2,000 years ago, in case you didn't know it. In case you didn't know it, the original liberation movement came from Jesus Christ and nobody else. In fact, every single one of the stories of the four Gospels mention not only Mary Magdalene, but some of the other women, which is really interesting because, you know, one of the arguments is, well, th- there's, there's these, these, don't, these stories don't tell the, they're, they're not completely consistent because sometimes they mention certain characters and they don't mention others because that's what the skeptics like to say. But, you know, C.S. Lewis said, I've read a lot of legendary stories and the New Testament is in comprehensibly clumsy and clunky compared to a really good novel written by fiction. Because whatever you would do, if you were a first century Christian to defend your faith, you would not tell the world that the first people that saw Jesus was a woman, unless in fact that was the truth. And two centuries later, all the women are going, amen. (laughs) Because 
Our cultural perspectives have changed, have they not? But the fact remains, the Lord uses weakness to reveal His glory and His power. So, Thomas couldn't recognize... So Mary couldn't recognize Jesus because of her pain. A lot of us can't recognize God because of our pain. Our pain overwhelms us. And Thomas couldn't recognize Jesus because of his hope-starved unbelief. I imagine that what Thomas... Thomas had, was a really loyal soul. Earlier in one of the Gospels, Jesus said... He, he told the disciples that he was going down to Jerusalem and he would be killed. And Thomas said, let's go down and die with him. He was willing to do it. But he was a man who looked at the facts. And the facts told him that Jesus was dead, the dream was over, his hope was dashed, there was no more hope. He had depleted all the hope in his life out of a great di disappointing circumstance that looked insurmountable and was inconceivable. And he thought this was going to be the Messiah that was going to usher in the changes that we've all been dreaming of. And now our dreams are absolutely crushed and destroyed and scattered across Jerusalem. It was a mirage. It was not real. And how many of us in life have ex experienced the exact same thing? Life can be crushing. And it can crush our hope. It crushes, well, you know, all you young snappers, someday you'll be as bitter as I am. That's a Thomas. I just want to always... Be like a kid. That's why I like those guys. I just keep, I just wish one of them would run all the way up and get away from their mother. Don't you? How many of you all want to see that? I, I, you know, I don't ever want to lose my hope. Because hope is what stifles, the lack of it is what stifles our faith. Faith is the confident expectation of things hoped for. But there's an interesting thing. Jesus is not intimidated by anybody's hopeless unbelief. And you know what he does? He shows up. And I love the, the translation I read to you. It says, after he showed up, this is eight days after the first resurrection appearance. John tells of the second one, and that's eight days later. And Thomas, who happens to be there, who has been saying to the guys, hey, you know. Oh, and it says, by the way. In the first account, that Jesus did show his nail prints and his, his side, the wound in his side, to the, to the ten disciples who were there. And by the way, one of the other stories indicates that it was the ten disciples plus many others. That's one of those, well, those contradictions. Like I said, it sounds more like a, a police report than an epic novel. 
Because that's what it is. It's just the facts. It's just telling a historical story. These guys were fishermen. They weren't novelists trained at Oxford. I want to ask you a question. If, if I said to you, um, I'm going to pick any one of you out. I'm going to just point a finger to this young lady over here. Uh, Anna, we, we want Anna to become the most important person according to Ranker.com. For those of you that don't know that, you're, just, you're over 20. But Ranker.com says that there's one person that is the most influential person in the world throughout history. You know who that person is? Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus Christ is the most. Well, I, I've, got an object, I've got an objective. I want to, to make Anna the most important person in the world 2,000 years from now. How would I do it? Any volunteers? Maybe I would send her to Oxford. Maybe I would have her born to a Kennedy. Maybe I would... Make sure she has plenty of money to start with. And see, instead, you know what I, I do? I, I, I don't just do this. I, I consult. I go to Harvard Business School. I go to UCLA. I go to the top universities in the world. And I say, look, I go to North Carolina State and, and Chapel Hill. <laughs> I get, in, I get the best engineers, I get the best sociologists, psychologists, and we put together a plan to make this person an enduring personality. Let me tell you what God did. God made him be born to a minority people group that were some of the most despised people on the planet. He gave him his job and his career was a construction worker. He never traveled more than a few hundred miles from home. And before he was 34 years old, he was killed and abandoned by every single one of, the, of his acolytes who said they loved him. He never wrote a book, and he never wrote one word down that we know. And this is how you're going to be the most consuming personality in the history of the world? There is only one explanation. He rose from the dead. And anybody who raises from the dead will be eternally popular because he will reveal himself to you. And that's his promise. If you recognize him, Peter didn't recognize him. I don't think Peter recognized him because of his shame. A lot of us don't recognize the Lord because we really do carry a great deal of shame about our lives. Shame is probably one of the most powerful forces besides fear on the human race. And shame is that one thing that makes us always want to hide and really shame often not always but often comes from 
one of the oldest sins that have plagued the human race. Remember what sin of comparison. First question he asked. You remember what Jesus said? He said, first question he asked him after they'd had breakfast. The first question he asked Peter was this. Peter, do you love me more than these? What was his answer? He said, Lord, you know I love you. Peter suffered from what a lot of us suffer from, a superiority complex. Peter said, look, all those guys may deny you, Jesus, I never will. I'm, I'm good for, I mean, I'm, I'm your brother. I'm, I've got your back. I've got your six. I am a loyal dude. You can count on me. Because my self-image and my self-perception is that I have to be better than everybody. Therefore, you will like me. Do you know that most of us approach God that way? You know, I, if I, you know, I'm not as bad as most everybody. I should get in heaven because of that. I, I, when I compare myself with those people, the, those guys over there, you know, finishing up their fish breakfast, I think I, that's, not what, that's not what Peter did that day. Because Peter had been around another fire just a few days earlier. And in that, and around that fire, you know what he'd done three times? Three times Peter had said, I don't, I, I don't know who he is. No, I'm, I, no, I'm not one of those guys. And finally, he started hurling curse words, which doesn't sound like a Christian. And he started hurling these curses and saying, I don't know the man. Do you see what Jesus did around the fire a few days later? He sought him out. See, he'd focused on Thomas, and now he sought out Peter. He'd sought out Mary. You see, the myth is that you and I seek God. That's a myth. None seek God. You know who seeks? He does. He's the one coming for you. And he's not coming for you like a sheriff. He's coming for you like a shepherd. Because that's who he is. But if you have the false image of him, you will stay away because you know you're not acceptable to him. And that's what religion does to us. It makes us think we've got to be good enough for him. Can I just tell you? Christianity is not about leadership, but about followership. It's not about becoming more. It's becoming less and less of who you are in your worst state. Jesus isn't looking for great people. He's looking at people that are in touch with their weakness. And you know what? All over the world today, Christianity is just exploding among the poorest and the simplest and the most, the folks none of us want to be.
poor, sleeping in the same room as maybe some of our children with no heat, very little electricity. Why is that? Because I think the reason is, is our superiority. But I, I'm going to make you one last person. I, wanna, I want you to look at one last person, and that's John. He's the only one, it says, and let me go back to this, the Scripture. The, the competitive, look, he and, he and Peter must have had something going because they, they were competing. I just think it's so funny. I don't, I don't know about you, but if I'm talking about the resurrection, I'm not talking, I'm not doing trash talking while I'm telling that story. But it, it's, it's kind of like John's doing some serious trash talking about Peter. I don't know if you get the same humor as that. I, maybe I'm, maybe that I'm showing my lack of renewal here. I don't think so. I think he was trash talking. So Simon Peter, now I love this about Simon. Simon Peter is this impulsive go-getter, which is one of the things, he jumps off the boat, he runs into the tomb, you know, contemplative thinking, cerebral. John looks in and goes, I don't know if I need to go in there. Looks like, uh, and Peter just, I may be last, but I get in first. That's Peter. Do you ever notice something about Jesus? There's nobody he doesn't love. He loves every person's personality. You go, well, I don't really like me. I wish I could be like. That's that old comparison thing. And Peter actually had a great deal of despising of himself. That's why he had so much shame. That thing goes all the way back to Cain, by the way. Cain compared, he, he was supposed to be better than his little brother. And when his little brother had a sacrifice better than him, his loss of identity caused him to murder him. That's another subject. Simon Peter arrived after him, entered the tomb, observed the linen cloths lying there. Now, there's an interesting word there. Um, what it says is instead of just looking and seeing like you and I might look and see, it says he began to postulate or theorize or evaluate the evidence. What, what John's telling us is he began to think. It's interesting, this is my summation, or you can disagree, but I think the thinker of the group is the one that actually it says this. Then the other disciple, thats he's talking about himself without really saying it. The one who had gotten there first. <laughs> went into the tomb, took one look at the evidence and believed. John is the first person to believe and he's the only person that had yet to see Jesus. In all of these stories, they all met the risen Lord. How many of you want to be like John? Now, let me just tell you, I don't, you say, well, you know, I can't see Jesus. Look, 
People are seeing the man in white all over the world. The man in white, though, keeps making one. He will not break this concession. I may show up, but you've got to still talk to one of my people. Don't ask me why he does it. It's weakness. Because our king doesn't come in chariots. He comes on a donkey. Our king doesn't come from position and status and wealth and privilege and pedigree. Our king identifies with the weakest one of us, the most helpless of us. There's not a single person in the universe that has been born to a woman that he doesn't identify with. He suffered for every single one of us. John was willing to abandon everything for Jesus. And let me just say this. It's not enough. Some of you say, well, yeah, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a Christian, pretty much. I mean, yeah, I don't believe in Buddha. But you've never really done anything with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You've never done what John and Peter and Thomas and Mary Magdalene ended up doing. Risking their very lives. And in most cases, Thomas ended up planting a church in what we now know as India as a martyr. We know Peter was a martyr in Rome. We know that John died in prison on an island. He might have been executed before his death. We don't know what Mary Magdalene did, but it's reported that she was a martyr as well on some documents in the church history. The point is, no one dies for a fabrication or a fantasy unless they know beyond a shadow of a doubt. The question is, do you? Have you made the commitment, the decision to make Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord, your personal Lord? You have made a personal decision to follow Jesus with all your heart. I, I would be totally remiss on our Easter to not invite every single person here to make that commitment to Christ. And some of you have been incredibly damaged in your emotions. Your, your dreams have been dashed. Your hopes have been crushed. When you look around and you see yourself like other people and you feel like a failure, it doesn't really matter all of those things. They just put you in touch with your frailty. And that's where he starts. He exchanges life. You want to give him your life and he gives you his. I want to read you one of the early reformers, John Calvin, said this. He was sold to buy us back, captive to deliver us, condemned to absolve us. He was made a curse for our blessing, a sin offering for our righteousness, marred that we may be made fair, died for our life so that by him fury is made gentle, 
wrath appeased, darkness turned into light, fear reassured, despisal despised, debt canceled, labor lightened, sadness made merry, misfortune made fortunate, difficulty easy, disorder ordered, division united, ignominy ennobled, rebellion subjected, intimidation intimidated. Ambush uncovered, assault assailed, force forced back, combat combated, war warred against, vengeance avenged, torment tormented, damnation damned, the abyss sunk into the abyss, hell transfixed, death dead, mortality made immortal, in short mercy has swallowed up all misery. And goodness, all misfortune. Would you please stand? And I want us to pray. If you have, if there is in something inside your heart saying, I really am compelled to believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. I, I am compelled that I have been disillusioned disappointed I've had my hopes dashed I've had my I've had my excuses then I want to I want to invite you to pray with me this morning I was a 16 year old kid when I heard a message something like this I don't even really understand what all he said but I just knew I was like John I saw the evidence and I believed I, I didn't have to see Jesus I just it just something it's not enough to just believe up here you got to believe right here that's where eternal life comes from the make the 18 inch drop so if you would pray that prayer with me I want you to pray a prayer I want you to mean it I don't want you to do it ritualistically but I want you to pray with me this prayer, if that's you, if you feel like, if you sense in your heart that you want to recognize Jesus as the risen Savior, not just kind of my religious preference. This morning is the time to do this. So I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer. My Lord and my God, I accept you as my Lord and my God. I receive all that you have and I give you all that I am. I want to follow you. I know you have been seeking me a whole lot more than I have sought you. I give you my life and I surrender it unconditionally to do whatever you will with it. Amen.